0: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Access to business banking services for crypto companies has always been difficult. The uncertainty around regulatory and legal status of cryptocurrencies meant that many traditional financial services companies have had a policy of simply not working with companies in the crypto ecosystem. Now, in recent years, some banks have embraced the opportunity and started to cater to crypto businesses. But after the recent banking crisis, there's again a shrinking number of options. Today, I'm joined by a former chain analysis colleague Simon Osiker, who's CEO and co-founder of a new company Genuare. They're solving this problem for blockchain companies across the European Union. Genuare is not a bank but offers payment account solutions and most importantly an IBON account number which means that a business can now get easy and reliable access for an operating account to be used for payroll and other business expenses. Simon and I talk about why the EU market is perfect for his company to provide payment gateway services and how the MECA regulations have actually been beneficial in simplifying registration and operating his business and other crypto companies across the region. Now you may have heard on social media that the Chainalysis Links Conference just wrapped up in New York City. It was the biggest show we've ever put on. If you weren't one of the people that was there in person though, don't worry our youtube channel will carry many of the main stage sessions over the next few weeks so make sure you scroll down to the link in the show notes and click the subscribe button you'll get notified as we post the content and last thing if you're in europe or want to see us in amsterdam we'll be there may 8th and 9th for links europe and the registration is now open today i'm joined by a chainalysis alum who has started an exciting new company in europe Januar. Simon, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Ian. I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: Tell us what you've been up to since leaving Chainalysis. You've been pretty quiet because I think we've been in the pre-launch phase of your new venture, but I think it's incredibly timely that we've got you on the podcast. What you're working on is, is specifically related to, I think, some of the big headlines, particularly those happening in the US this week in the crypto industry. Maybe start with just a short overview of the company and what you're aiming to build.
1: Yep. Yeah brief background I joined Chainalysis in 2016 and then I left in 2020 and then a couple of months after that I started and founded Yanua and the inspiration for for founding Yanua was actually seeing this huge issue that crypto businesses had with access to banking and by 2020 or 2021 that was not a solved problem at all and it's even less solved today especially if you look at the United States so What I did and and what the founding team did was we looked into the payment regulation in Europe and it's actually quite open. So we had something called the Payment Service Directive, PSD2, that kind of opened up the entire space for, you can call it banking as a service or payment as a service. In Europe, a lot of payments and a lot of accounts are not facilitated by banks, but by payment institutes or electronic money institutes. So took a look at that, saw that there was actually an opportunity to acquire one of these licenses, and then we would have the right to go out and provide IBAN accounts, which is the European payment framework, to crypto businesses, taking that experience in risk management and compliance and transaction monitoring I had from Chainalysis. It was a very obvious case. We're not a bank. We're not allowed to say we're a bank, but we can provide these business accounts for crypto businesses in Europe now.
0: This is pretty incredible in the context of what we're seeing in the U.S., which appears to be a move to debank some or all parts of the crypto industry. I mean, just this week as we're recording, news comes from Silvergate that they've made a decision to wind down their operations. They were, of course, a core part of the traditional finance industry, banking a number of large crypto businesses here in the US. There's related headlines where other crypto companies are potentially having their banking relationships terminated. Talk to me about what's different in the European market compared to what's happening here in the US. We've got listeners in both markets, but I want to make sure that the people understand, you know, some of the nuances to the framework, because you described some things I'm not familiar with there, like payment institutes.
1: When I started in I said I was happy I wasn't doing it in the US because the market was captured there already, right? There's a signature bank and Silvergate and they pretty much had the market there. So that wasn't really a good place to start this business because there was too much competition, right? So Happy was starting out in Europe and now it seems to be a little (laughs) bit different in the US but it's generally a problem both in the US and in Europe, right? So if you're starting a crypto business, the likelihood of finding a bank that really understands your business, understands whether or not you're doing proper anti-money laundering checks and it's just not very likely to find those uh, banking partners.
0: That is definitely the case. I mean, in, in our business, we spend a lot of time talking to traditional finance players, whether it's in the payments ecosystem or the fintech ecosystem or the business or commercial banking ecosystem, who are like, help us understand even the landscape of businesses in the world of cryptocurrency. Who's trustworthy? Who's implemented strong transaction monitoring, KYC processes, who's competent when it comes to counterparty risk? And that level of conversation is is a fairly frequent one that I think our account teams have regularly as people are kind of first coming to market. You're obviously coming from the other end where you could understand all of those things deeply and make some, I think, safe judgments. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I've been on the other side of the table, right? I, I did a lot of training and education when I was at Chainalysis, so working with exchanges, working with banks, telling everyone else how they could use the tooling and what they should think about in terms of their ML programs. So I was kind of teaching and, and not doing it. And, and now it's, it's the other way around. Really enjoyed that because I always had a good idea of how I would do it how I'd build a crypto business if I did it myself, how I'd put together the compliance program. There's obviously a lot of other really great people on the team helping out with that. But I knew it was possible to, to solve the problem. It is possible to have a, a sound anti-money laundering program, even if you're banking or providing payment accounts for, for crypto businesses. So I took those best practices, best tooling, and, and applied that to our business case here in Europe.
0: And maybe describe a little bit more in detail what the product actually is. So if I decide to sign up, become one of your customers, what am I what am I getting?
1: If we start from the beginning right? Running a crypto broker or crypto exchange is not that different from selling sneakers right? If you don't have a bank account and your customers can't pay you, you don't have a business. And that's the same if you're selling sneakers or bitcoins. So that's the, the, the core problem is that if you can't get access to one of these accounts, there, there's nothing to do. And this is often a really, really big problem for the smaller players. We're seeing that is that some of the big players in the US looks like they're having issues with that as well now. But what really made me sad was that it was often the entrepreneurs. So those that wanted to start a crypto business could be just a basic retail broker selling bitcoins to people for credit cards or, or wireless transfers. In Europe they would go and they would register as a virtual asset service provider as it's called here, be in compliance with local regulation, would do everything right and then when they went to get a bank account they couldn't get one, right? As an entrepreneur, that that saddens me to see that and also as a crypto advocate, right? It means that there's so many people out there that want to build for this technology, that want to drive it forward. But if you can't get an account, you're basically dead in the water. And that's the problem that we, we set out to solve. So it's account, IBAN accounts, uh, you can receive money, you can send money out. That is the core product.
0: And so then I can have employees, I can do payroll, I can have customers send me funds, you know, payment for services rendered or purchases goods or in the case of a a crypto brokerage, depositing funds that they then use to buy cryptocurrency on the platform. All of those things are suddenly unlocked when I get this IBON account number.
1: Exactly. And the, the really good thing is that you'll have this account with a business that, that understands your business, right? I'd like to say that if, if we don't understand what you're doing in crypto, there's probably not anyone that will, right? And at the same time, like what we do is we go in and we assess the, the customers. Do we believe that we understand their business to the extent where we can mitigate for money laundering and we can mitigate for terror financing? And these are the risks, then they have a safe place to to run their business uh, at Yanwan.
0: It sounds amazing. And I would imagine that you know, starting with that Ibon account allows you to then build lots of other products and services out from there. Is that the ambition for the future of the company?
1: Absolutely. So we're gonna build the fiat side of the business first, and then we're gonna build a crypto side of the business as well. What we did is that we did the, the really hard thing first getting the licensing, building the infrastructure, core banking, ensure we can securely handle transactions, do accounting, all the the boring, tedious banking stuff that is super, super important. And then the next phase that we're starting soon is building a crypto trading platform as well, right? So you can do all the business that you really need as a crypto broker, any type of crypto business. You have access to fiat transactions. You can trade between fiat and crypto and you can do crypto transactions as well. And that's also where I think we're quite unique in the market, we are right in the middle. We have a team that's consisting of entrepreneurs uh, and bankers. That's quite one dimensional way to describe the team, but but overall that's that's kind of how to think about it. We know how to mitigate risk on the traditional financial side. And we also know on, on the crypto side.
0: So does that, that put you in the category of being almost like a wholesale brokerage or a, a market maker, the crypto side of the business? Is that the right way to think about where you're heading?
1: What we're going to be, to, to begin with, at least, is you can call it a broker of brokers. Yeah. And so okay. so you would get a price quote and you can, you can go into Bitcoin or Ethereum or other crypto assets and then back to yeah. two euros if you want to do that.
0: But you're not competing in the retail space, right? It's really for the business clients that are already using you for fiat banking, who exactly, would be, yeah. have access to that.
1: Exactly. Or uh, business to business only.
0: That's incredible. And the uh, the initial market, when you and I first chatted about the, the business idea a couple months ago, really focused on the European market specifically. Is that still the plan? Because I know lots has changed globally in terms of crypto regulations just in the last few months.
1: Definitely so. So, doing payments and banking is quite local. In Europe, we have this pretty unified framework. Um, So that's why we started in Denmark. We're we're a Danish company out of Copenhagen. I'm Danish. Most of the team's Danish. And this is our home turf. Denmark is is a really good country to start in. Started out with the local license. So we launched the product about six months ago and we were feature complete a month ago with API and and some additional security features. So within the next month, we're going to launch in the entire European Union. So we're super excited about that and preparing for that. So going from Denmark, which is a tiny, tiny market. It's been a really good proving ground, especially when you're handling other people's money, ensuring that everything works. Luckily, it does. But of course, our eyes are set out on the the European Union, because we know that that's a greatly underserved market. There's a couple of players doing something similar in in the UK, some in Switzerland, but they're not part of the EU. And that makes it a little bit more difficult for them to, to really serve all the other countries here.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I wonder a little bit, I mean, we've talked on this program before about the MICA regulation. And, and one of the big features of that, as I understand it, is to unify the crypto-related or digital asset-related regulatory approach across the EU. So rather than France and Germany and Denmark having a different set of rules around digital asset service providers and requiring a company like yours or a retail brokerage to register in each market. If you're licensed in one place, you're licensed everywhere. How much has that been a help to you, MICA collectively, and and also the kind of common market approach to be able to launch across 26 countries? Am I remembering the number of EU members correctly? Technically, Uh, it's
1: the European Economic Area. So I think it's it's actually closer to 30. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Exactly. It is quite unified. There's still a few local differences, Germany and France. But again, that's what we're good at is to understand that regulation and make sure we comply in all the different jurisdictions. So the draft for Mika, uh, markets and crypto assets, is pretty much done now. That means that there is quite a lot of clarity. I think we had a pretty good idea of of what would be covered and, and what it would look like before then, but now it's in writing. And that means that when Mika comes into play, which will most likely be at the end of 2024, there will be much clearer guidelines for crypto businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, but also the banks in this space, right? So actually having regulation is probably also what's going to allow for more institutional players to step in and service. But for us, it's good because it also means that the banks in Europe are probably not going to do anything for the next two years, which gives us a, a massive head start where we're serving customers, working with regulators, applying for licenses. And then in two years, the banks are going to start and banks don't move that fast. So, so that's also why we think this approach is, is the right one in, in Europe.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. It creates a bit of regulatory barrier to entry in the short term, and gives you the chance to launch and get to market. How do you imagine, though? I mean, at some point, obviously, the banks will say, "Well, if crypto business is legitimate, regulated, compliant, we want that business. We want to bank them." So, do you imagine a future where you're competing with traditional banks, or is there a complementary, collaborative story there that you can see playing out? How do you think about the long term future?
1: I think it's going to be a bit of both. I don't see any banks are gonna go in with this as their specific strategy to bank crypto businesses before Mika comes into effect. Some of them might might do their homework first, but the majority of, of the European banks are, are gonna play it safe and, and wait. So that gives us, uh, again, a, a pretty good head start. At some point, all the banks are gonna do the same and also in terms of how they offer products. So, so there's two things the banks can do, right? They can sell crypto products themselves, or they can work with the crypto businesses that already exist. Some of them will work crypto businesses but by then the payment institutes and the e-money institutes in Europe will have a much better setup for that like we will have crypto trading for for instance and have features and services that are much more tailored to the crypto businesses out there so I think the banks are going to have a bit of a hard time getting into that market when it comes to to the products that they'll be launching it's going to come from the demand from their customers is, is our expectation right so at some point if you're a bank and you can't offer your customers the ability to invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that, the customers are going to leave or they're going to do that somewhere else. And I think all the banks, they're going to follow the same process, right? They're going to launch crypto investments in like a closed loop system. So you can't withdraw your Bitcoins. Uh, they can only be in there. And then at some point, they're going, to, they're going to open the loop and actually offer wallets. But I think it's going to be several years before you can actually get a crypto wallet with a bank in Europe. I think that's going to be three, four, five years at least, but I might be surprised. There are a couple of the neo banks that offer that, but the big ones, I, I don't see them doing that anytime soon.
0: We've seen definitely some of the neo banks and the fintechs who have, have gone quickly down that path, like Robinhood and PayPal are two examples here in the US market. I think eToro and maybe Monzo are two that, that operate a bit more in Europe or globally, but certainly none of the traditional banks. We have seen a few move into digital asset custody, like Bank of New York Mellon has kind of pioneered that in the US market. But I'm not aware of anybody in Europe who's yet traditional banking offering custody solutions. So.
1: No, I, I heard the, I heard your CEO, Mikael, uh, on, on a different podcast uh, a couple of days ago. And, and he said that that one day all crypto exchanges are going to be banks and, and all banks are going to be crypto exchanges. Right. And we're, we're right in the middle. And I don't know if we're going to be a bank. Uh, also, being in Europe, you don't have to be. There's some advantages to that, but it's going to move closer to each other. But I think it's going to be a couple of years at least before that happens.
0: I tend to agree with his assertion there, but I think the timeline is really the question mark. You know, is that two years, five years, 10 years down the road where these things start to meaningfully converge? It's hard to future cast on that particular point. Can you talk a little bit about this distinction that you're drawing where you're allowed to take deposits and send money, but you're not a bank? What's going on there? Because that at a very basic level would be how I would describe banking. Explain maybe the the regulatory distinction that's being drawn there. And are there limitations on the types of services or products you can offer your customers as a result of that?
1: It almost sounds like I'm, I'm a little bit cagey when I talk about it, right? And uh, <laughs> there's quite a fun story behind that. So we're what's called a payment institute, which is a European kind of classification. What we're allowed to issue is payment accounts. And one day early, when we were just getting started, uh, someone wrote the word bank on our website and we actually got a call from, from the FSA the next day, one of my co-founders and said, you can't write that on your on your website, you're, you're not a bank. We thought we cleared that internally, but, but somehow it, it managed to get its way on on the website again so we we agreed we don't want to get another one of those calls Uh, we want a good relationship with our regulators so so in general we don't say the the b-word in January but it is very difficult when you try to explain others what you do because for most intents and purposes what we deliver is what people would traditionally associate with a bank but you can do almost everything you can with a bank at Yenwa You just can't have permanent deposits, or you can't have deposits at all, which is also, again, you can't even use the word deposit. So you can't have funds on your account. For a longer permanent time unless they are meant for some payments in the future. Without getting into all the details, the way I kind of explain it is that you can do pretty much everything as a crypto startup. If you have a Yano account, the only thing you can't do is you can't get 5 million in venture capital funding and then put that in the Yano account. You need to put that somewhere else. But everything where you have anything from salary or rent or software licenses, and of course, all the crypto related activities to and from exchanges, to and from trading partners, liquidity partners, all that you can do with a with a Yenua account.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I would expect the impact of that is that because all the capital through a customer account is transient in some way, there's no ability for your company to lend that because you don't have deposits right? You're prohibited from having deposits. So it's not like a checking or savings account where you pay some interest rate for being able to take the capital and, and lend it uh, or put it to work in some other financial services product. You don't have the ability to do that at all. Is that, is that an accurate guess?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we're not allowed to to charge or provide interest rates for, for what we're doing. We have segregated accounts for all our customers. Everything is there one to one, which is also what you saw with Silvergate in the US as it wasn't there.
0: I mean, this is sort of a benefit, actually, what you're describing is that you can't make money by holding fractional reserves or lending out customer funds to earn some rate of return. These days, that actually sounds like a great result. I think a lot of people would look kindly on, on that not being possible. But it does raise the question, what's the business model then? Is it just a fee for service? Like I pay for opening the account and that's how you end up making money.
1: Yeah. It's fee based. It's it's transaction fees, it's trading fees, it's FX fees, account fees, like any other type of payment or banking service.
0: Interesting. One other question related to the market that you're looking to serve. So obviously the EU is your primary market, but I think about crypto generally is is really borderless. There's no difference in me sending a Bitcoin or a USDC to someone that's down the street or to you in Denmark or to someone on the other side of the world. Those transactions don't really respect international borders. And a lot of the companies that are operating in crypto, particularly the bigger ones, they're multinational. Some would argue they're not even domiciled anywhere they have no base of operations or a floating base like how do you think about that as you build your business is there a regulatory consideration that you need to think about there or a limitation
1: Not in particular, we need to be aware that this is a global market. We need to be aware of things such as sanctions, politically exposed persons, all that stuff that all financial institutions need to. And and then obviously our customers need to be in the European Union. We are making plans to to go into the UK later, potentially Switzerland as well. But again, the UK market is kind of saturated already. That's where a lot of the competitors are. So we're really focusing on the jurisdictions where they're not. We can offer it across the EU and a lot the the companies that are all over the world. They have, as you said, subsidiaries in the EU, and those would be the entities that we onboard. But of course, we need to understand the the general ownership structure for us to, to onboard a company.
0: One of the pieces of the Mika regulation that I think seems to be particularly well thought out was clearer definitions around what a stablecoin is, but also included there was guidelines or setting up a framework for issuing euro-denominated stablecoins required those assets to be held both physically in the EU and I think euro-denominated or held at a, a European financial institution. In effect, you can't say, oh yeah, I've got one-to-one reserves for all these stable coins and it's parked in some imaginary bank account in non-regulated jurisdiction, I think is the layman's interpretation of that. Is that an area that you see your company being able to support businesses looking to set up EU-denominated stable coin in the future? Is that something you're working on?
1: That's a very, very good question. We did all the research. I would say that we're almost certain how we would do it if we were to do it. I think it's going to be very interesting to look at blockchain euros. In Europe, they're going to be regulated as what's called e-money. These e-money institutes were made to to regulate gift cards back in the days, but they actually work quite well for for this purpose now. So if you're an e-money institute, you can issue e-money, but that e-money can be a blockchain euro. So if you hold a euro in in your account as an e-money institute, then you can go out and, and you can put it on basically whatever blockchain and then European or overseas can use those e-money tokens or e-money euro as a a blockchain euros as the stable coins that you know now. And they'll be fully regulated, backed one-to-one, supervised by local regulators. It's it's a very clear framework, actually. I think it's going to leapfrog central bank digital currencies by many years. They're going to be super interesting in terms of just how fast you can do settlement with them, international transactions fully backed. It's, It's really interesting, which is also why we took a deep, hard look at what it would take. And we We ultimately decided it's not anything we're going to focus on right now. There are a couple of really interesting companies doing that in in Europe at the moment, already holding those licenses and issuing euro on the blockchain. So it's definitely a space we're watching closely. And our our strategy right now is that we're we're very excited to support all of them uh, once we have the trading platform uh, launched as well. But we probably won't do it ourselves, at least not right now.
0: A future innovation cycle then. We'll park it in the icebox on the development roadmap. There was a story that came out of Lithuania related to a big exchange losing something called their PSP. And Lithuania's central bank laid out instructions that said, hey, no new business relationships or services with clients that operate virtual asset or crypto businesses. Can you walk us through what's going on in in Lithuania? And is this a trend that we we should watch out for? kind of across the European market or is you think this is an outlier if you've got an opinion there on on what's going on
1: Yeah so so we've seen the the Baltic countries kind of tightening the grip a bit on on all the cryptocurrency businesses they had there e-money institutes as well I'm not 100% into the details or which ones were affected but we also seen that there is a couple of of competitors over there as well but also it looks like regulation is tightening a bit around them. I'm also pretty happy we didn't we didn't start Januar with a license from, for instance, uh, Lithuania. But it's it's very difficult to say where, where that's going to end. Right now, we're very happy to be, be regulated in Denmark. Denmark has a good tradition of passporting these licenses across Europe, uh, which is also what will enable us to de- just do something such as as marketing, right? So all these things are, are captured within European uh, regulatory framework.
0: I mean, it's been something that I think people have, have flagged for a while is the the most lenient jurisdictions maybe allow you to get launched into market quickly. But at some point, you're going to start seeing those licenses rejected by the more stringent jurisdictions if there's not appropriate controls and kind of regulatory oversight in place. And that's the moment I think we've arrived in after 2022 is you're seeing businesses collapse, retail investors losing money, people are upset the government didn't do something to prevent the loss in the first place, or allowed, you know, maybe some some companies to mislead or defraud their customers, and like, wait, where was the regulatory oversight? So a crackdown or the the tightening of the oversight and restrictions there is probably one that in many markets is going to be a theme. I think in twenty twenty three,
1: it's going to be really really interesting to see what happens, especially also between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, what we're seeing in the U.S. right now is, is very much regulation through enforcement, which is very bad for, for a lot of reasons. It, it makes it very risky to to start and invest in companies in the space. And it just makes everything so unpredictable. And that's also why I think Europe's going to be probably the obvious the U.S. denominated stable coins and stuff like that is going to continue to be very important. There's a lot of, of very large companies in the U.S. in the crypto space. But I think Europe is very much up and coming now with the new regulation. I think we're going to see a lot more venture capital being deployed in European companies just because there is regulatory clarity. Like you want to be able to invest in a company that knows how the world looks like in two years, right? And it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that plays out. I also think that the Mika framework in Europe is going to be somewhat exported around the world because it it seems okay, almost good. It's regulation we can work with. It makes sense. It's predictable. It allows us to build a a business. And that's very, very interesting as, as an entrepreneur.
0: I think it's such a challenge as a founder to say it's impossible to know what I'm allowed to do or not allowed to do.
1: You can see it with the bid license in New York, right, which I think many would argue was not very good regulation and not very thorough. And and yet it still attracted the biggest businesses in in the world. In the U.S., they went to New York to get that license and get regulated just because of the clarity it provided. And now we have something that's going to be a lot better in, in Europe.
0: I think the industry is clamoring for it. I, I talk to a lot of founders who are just saying, we want to build in this space, but we don't want to create something, you know, spend years building the business creating the technology, recruiting customers, only to then be told, oh, that's not allowed. And I think that's the moment that we find ourselves in the U.S., unfortunately. So hopefully we can move past that. I would love if if Mika becomes sort of the de facto framework that we see adopted across other markets, not just the U.S., but I think we've got we've got a number of countries in Asia that are also in the this moment of decisioning around the framework. Back to your business, you all just raised a pretty substantial round of financing recently. And I believe we're weeks to to maybe a month or two away from the broad launch. Like talk to me about the, the plans for growth and and what are you looking forward to this year?
1: Yeah, so so we raised a, around a year and a half ago. It's a little while since we did it, but we're ironing out the last things uh, and then we're, we're gonna launch in the EU. So opening up the market a uh, hundred times or more compared to to who we can serve now. So everyone is, is really, really excited excited about that, the silence before the storm.
0: <laughs> that's exciting. How big is the team now?
1: So we're, uh, we're 28 people and that's the fun thing about building a fintech, right? You, you need to be a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of functions. Although we're not a bank, we basically built a bank in, in two years. I'm really, really proud of the team being able to do that. Everything from handling payments, security, user interface, it's been really cool to see a, basically a, the infrastructure, at least for a bank being being built around you.
0: I'm curious as we as we wrap up the interview, we have a lot of founders that listen to the podcast, a lot of people that are maybe thinking about becoming a founder in the in the crypto space. What's some of your advice? I mean, you you had the opportunity to work at Chainalysis for a number of years and see this company grow and now you've building your own for a couple of years. What do you wish you could go back in time and tell your your younger earlier self? Or what would you share with other people that are thinking about striking out on their own?
1: So I think especially in this industry, like you you need to be able to handle the volatility, like you need to be able to handle bull and bear markets, valuations in a bull market are much higher than in a bear market. So you need to really ensure that like, at least historically these cycles are about four years coinciding with the Bitcoin halvings, right? Not saying that will continue, but but that's at least how it is. And and the general kind of timeline for a company is like two years or something like that if you're a startup, right? So if you're not aware of that and don't time that Correctly, like you, you could end up at, at the bottom of a bear market with without any uh, any capital left, right? I also remember one of the things we, we talked about uh, in the early days of Chainalysis is this ketchup bottle effect, right? Back in 20, 2016, like nobody thought crypto would, would amount to anything, right? And Chainalysis uh, was was definitely never going to be a huge company and, and the crypto business would not and people wouldn't invest, right? And we kept talking about, well, at some point there's going to be this ketchup bottle effect and everyone wants in, right? And, and we saw that the first time in, in 2020 2017 or 2021, right? Those two kind of market market tops. Suddenly, you saw a lot of interest. Everything from banks, finance institutions, venture capital. Like you see these big pushes where all all the ketchup just comes out. So I definitely think that the entrepreneurs really need to understand that they're moving into market cycles that historically have been four years, and that is an interesting dynamic when the timelines for for most startups are like two to three years, right? Uh, especially the early stage ones.
0: I was struggling there to catch the ketchup bottle analogy, but I think I finally get it. It's when you're shaking the ketchup bottle, and nothing's coming out, nothing's coming out, and then all of a sudden you end up with a ton of ketchup on your burger as, yeah, as with, it splashes the out of it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. And I, I think it's super relevant because a lot of the people that are in crypto, they're they have very high conviction. They believe it's going to be huge, or, or bigger than, than it is now. And a lot of things are, are just doing the, the right thing at the wrong time. Just before I joined Chainalysis, I was doing NFT tickets on colored coin on Bitcoin, which was obviously a lot of years too early. But now we're seeing a lot of companies out there trying to do uh, non-fungible tickets. It's really about like identifying what are the business cases? What is it that everyone will need once this grows larger? And I believe that payments and banking is definitely one of those. And, and they're not being served now. And, and I'm sure there's a ton of, of other things that just needs to be built. And I'm excited to see what it is.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know that you had done work on uh, colored coin. I was just reading about that recently as I was catching up on all the buzz around ordinals and the connection was drawn back to that. So these things really do run in market cycles and timing. Timing turns out to be everything. You can have a great idea and bad timing and not get anywhere. Well, it feels like your timing is is incredibly perfect with the new company. Simon, I really enjoyed learning about give me the pronunciation again, because you've got a, a different accent than i did. My American calls it Januar.
1: That's, that sounds almost French. I'll very quickly give you, give you the story. So Januar is Danish for January. And January is the month of the Roman god Janus. And Janus is the god of doors and transitions and gates and he has one face looking into the future and one face looking into the past and that's very much how we see ourselves. We have one one face looking at the kind of traditional financial industry and, and one looking at crypto, right? And, and that's where we believe our strength comes from is, is being right right in the middle and understanding both sides. So, Januar in, in Danish.
0: Januar. Yeah, very flat. There we go. Januar, yeah. yeah, I keep wanting to put a my limited language training outside of English was French so I I think I'm trying to put a little French accent on it. But Simon, this was terrific. I love the story. I love the origin of the name. I think this idea is going to be a hit. And I know there's a bunch of crypto businesses in Europe looking forward to the broader launch. We'll keep an eye out for that news coming soon.
1: Sounds good. It's, it's been a pleasure, Ian. Hey there.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. You should go and follow us right now on Twitter, LinkedIn, our newly launched TikTok channel, because we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you're particularly into crypto policy and financial compliance, then I bet you'll enjoy our new YouTube show, Know Your Crypto Compliance, which is hosted by my colleague, Caitlin Barnett. Last week, You might have missed it, but it was announced that authorities had shut down one of the largest fraud shops on the dark web, Genesis Market, and they arrested hundreds of users around the world in a coordinated international law enforcement effort dubbed Operation Cookie Monster. The Office of Foreign Asset Control also sanctioned the criminal marketplace due to its facilitation of sale of stolen data and personal information, which was then in turn used for several different forms of cybercrime, including sophisticated phishing schemes identity theft, and of course, ransomware. If you want to get into the details of the Genesis Market takedown and what you can see on chain, then you need to read the blog that we post on the website. As
1: always, the link is in the show notes.